Okay, look, let me invite your attention to God's Word, Revelation chapter 2, and I want you to pull out your teaching outline early on in the message here because I've got a question right on the start, and I want you to think through this with me, and here's the question, is our church rich? It's a sobering question because here's the possibilities. It could be many things, but the church could be financially poor and spiritually rich. The church could also be financially rich and spiritually and there are other mixtures of that scenario as well. One of the things I'm a priest of in my life and ministry over the years is that the Lord has allowed me to travel the world and I've been able to go into countries where churches are persecuted and they don't have freedoms like we have and being able to re- relate with those believers in Christ and pastors and see the work of the gospel and lives are being changed. It's been wonderful to be there. And here's what I observed around the world. Many, many churches around the world are financially poor by what we would understand poverty. But here's what I've been encouraged by. Many of these churches, they may not have many financial resources, but they are spiritually rich in their walk with Christ. And so as I think about those churches, I think about, again, believers, that they, they're persecuted, they're threatened, they're beaten, they're crushed in many ways. And then I think about the difference between those churches and churches in America. And I, again, I'm just thankful to the Lord that he's given me a global perspective to see the church in action. And so as I think about that, what's the difference in churches around the world and many times churches in America? Here's what you'll find. Churches around the world, many of them are standing room only. Uh, I remember being in Russia one time. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, we were staying in a hotel. And we, we go by stars, one star to five stars in hotels. I would say this hotel was maybe a quarter of a star. It, it just really wasn't much on the radar screen. It was bad, and I got up that Sunday morning, and I kind of pulled back the curtain and looked out in Russia, and snow was falling to the ground. It was, a, it was a large snow. And so as I sat there reading the Bible and praying, thinking about this Sunday morning, I thought, Lord, I wonder how many people are really going to be in church today here in Russia. They don't have cars. Buses are going to be hard to ride, so they're going to walk to church. How many people are going to be in church today? And then I thought back, if this was happening in America, the church I was pastoring at the time, Possibility we may have even thought about canceling the service that morning. And then there's a possibility, probably reality, that many people aren't going to come because the weather's going to be really, really bad because of all the snow and, the, and what was happening outside. And so thought about that, and then we make our way to the church building in, in Russia. It's called a dome molitbi. It just means house of prayer. And so I remember turning a corner, and I'm seeing the building where this church meets at, and there was this little snow-trodden path up to the church it was person after person after person. And when I got there in that church facility that Sunday morning and got ready to preach, it was literally standing room only that Sunday morning. And that kind of weather didn't affect them at all. They were there to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But many churches, standing room only, many other churches, those who are believers, they will risk their lives to be able to name the name of Jesus in life. And then many of those churches are exploding in growth as well. Numerical growth and spiritual growth, the Holy Spirit is moving. Let me ask again, is our church rich? And then you look around and you see what's happening in churches in America and you say, what's going on? Many churches in America today, there are more empty pews than there are filled pews. In, In many churches in America, there are many members, their attendance is very infrequent. They come when there's nothing else on the calendar, when they're not out of town, when there are no sports games, that's when they'll show up. 
And then there are many members of churches we can't even find them. We doubt if the FBI could find them as well. They never come. And then we look at many, many churches. They're plateaued. They're declining. They're dying. Many churches every single year lock their doors and walk away. They no longer exist. That's the difference in churches around the world and churches right here in our own country. I just pray today on this Sunday, we'll, we'll lean into God's word here in Revelation 2 about the suffering church, the church in Smyrna, because I believe God has a word for us in this passage about your walk with him and my walk with him, but also for us as a church as well. Let me give you some more insight to this. Smyrna, city of about 200,000 people, somewhere in the neighborhood of something like Clarksville, Montgomery County, 200,000 people, 35 miles north of Ephesus. Many people believe the church in Ephesus, the one who planted the church in Smyrna. Uh, but, but also we know this, that, that there were hostile a takeover at one point and they destroyed the city of Smyrna, literally left it in ashes. Alexander the Great decided he was going to rebuild the city of Smyrna and it became the glory of Asia. And as you think about the city of Smyrna, let me give you just three insights to help you understand the context of this letter that's written to the church in Smyrna from Jesus. Understand the context of this. What was Smyrna known for? One, they were known for emperor worship. What that means is the expectation, if you lived in this city of about 200,000 people, you were to say these words, Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't say that, then there's a good possibility your life is going to be taken out. You're going to be crushed. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be beaten. You could even die if you didn't say that Caesar was Lord. Also, you have to look at the Greek word, Smyrna. Coming out of that is the word myrrh. It's an important biblical word because that word is just used when we talk about death. It's a perform, a perfume. It's, a, it's an embalming situation there. And we see this idea of myrrh at Jesus' crucifixion, but also as burial. We also see it when the wise men came to visit him. They brought what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, signifying the death that he was going to die. And so when you look at myrrh, it comes from a plant. The only way to get that fragrance, that perfume, is when that plant is crushed. And then it becomes a fragrant offering to the Lord. Let me ask you, what kind of offering are we giving to the Lord today as well? Are you and I willing to be crushed? Are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to be persecuted because of our relationship with Jesus Christ? So you've got emperor worship. You've got this Greek word coming myrrh out of this. But also, thirdly, you've got this local church in the city of Smyrna. Can you imagine being a faithful believer in an environment where you had to say Caesar is Lord or you could lose your life? Can you imagine being faithful to Jesus in that context to say, we're not going to confess that. We're not going to bend the knee to Caesar. We are faithful to Jesus. And if we say anything, it's going to be this. Jesus is Lord. That's the city they lived in. And they were found faithful because, in fact, Jesus had nothing negative to say about the church in Smyrna. Let me go a little bit deeper here with you. As you think about the church in Smyrna, incredible group of believers. We also know this, that they were faithful in a tough environment. They experienced the glory of God, and they were faithful to the very end as well. Are you and I faithful when, when the going gets tough? Are you and I living for the glory of God in life? Are we willing to be persecuted and suffer because of our relationship with him? Another time I was in Russia, I was having dinner one night with, with a deacon in the church. His name was Boris. 
And we get to his apartment, his flat, they called it. And, and it was a, a meal of sacrifice for them because they had put this incredible meal out and, and it cost them a lot of money and it's not easy to do for them, but they wanted to treat us and, and to bring glory to God in the midst of that. So we're sitting around at Boris's house, having dinner, having conversation. Then ultimately, when in Russia, you pray before the meal and you pray after the meal. And so after we prayed after the meal, we kind of went over to a little living room situation where we sat down. And I began having a conversation with Deacon Boris. And I said, you know, Boris, you have to be thankful that the church is free now. You know, they come out of a communist background, persecuted background, and said, you've got to be thankful that the church is free. And Boris, with tears in his eyes, sitting in his little living room section, he said, I am thankful. But then he said these words to me. He said, I'm thankful for our freedom, but I must be willing to say, our church was stronger when we're persecuted than we are now that we're free. I said, Boris, help me understand that. You're thankful for freedom, but you said your church was stronger when you were persecuted than you are now when you're free. Why do you think that's the case? And here's what Boris said about that. He said, when we were persecuted, we were totally dependent on Jesus. He said, things have changed in our church. So when you look at the church in Smyrna, they were totally dependent on Christ. When you look at that church in Russia, they were totally dependent on Christ at a season of their lives. Let me ask you, First Baptist, are we totally dependent on Jesus as a church? Are we living by faith and not by sight? Are we totally dependent to say, Jesus, if anything happens in this church, it's because of the movement of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Are we dependent upon him? If you look at the church in Smyrna, they were absolutely 110% dependent on the leadership of Jesus in their midst. Now, write some of these words down as we walk through this text. One, believe Jesus understands. Uh, There's nothing that Jesus doesn't know. He is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. His presence is everywhere. Believe Jesus understands. One of the greatest basketball coaches to ever live was John Wooden. John Wooden coached the UCLA Bruins to maybe like 10 national championships in 12 years. He's in the Hall of Fame as a player, but also as a coach. When, when Coach Wooden would get these high star athletes together, basketball players, one of the first lessons he would do with them, and again, these are accomplished basketball players from around the country. Here's what Coach Wooden would do in the beginning. He would get them in the locker room and he would teach them how to properly put on their socks. Why he wanted to start with the basics? Because Coach Wooden would say, if your socks aren't on right, you're going to get blisters on your feet. And if you get blisters on your feet, you're not going to be able to play at the highest level. So we have to start with the basics. Church, I hope you understand, we should never forget the basics of the Christian faith. And so that's what the church in Smyrna is going to teach us. Let me give you these words. Number one, intimate fellowship. When you look at this text and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, talking about the pastor, the messenger, the, the, the leader, the elder, right, the words of the first and the last, he is the beginning and the end, he is the alpha, he is the omega, who died and came to life. Understand, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left heaven, came to Bethlehem, lived a perfect sinless life, died on an old rugged cross, beaten, bruised, humiliated, shed his blood, but three days later, the tomb was empty. Jesus Christ was alive then, and Jesus Christ is alive today. So he he died and he came to life. Intimate fellowship. Now, as you look at it, what do you say to someone who's suffering in life? 
you meet somebody and they're facing physical suffering or emotional suffering, relational suffering, financial suffering, even spiritual suffering, what do you say to people who are suffering in life? And here's what we would say to them. You need to understand you have a Savior who understands what you're going through and he desires intimate fellowship with you in life. Here's what I mean. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15, the Bible says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. What do I say to that? Jesus understands. So when you're suffering, he understands because he was broken, he was beaten, he was humiliated, he was crushed for your sin and my sin. We have intimate fellowship with a Savior who understands suffering. Number two, ministry opportunities. When you look at the church in Smyrna, here we are many, many years later. We're still talking about these faithful believers, this faithful church in a place where emperor worship was, was happening, where myrrh was there, where this local church was functioning. We're still talking about them. So God is still using them. So what do you say to suffering people? Well, you have a Savior who understands, but also we would say to them, don't waste the misery that you're going through in life. Don't waste your suffering. Because here's what we discover in the Christian life. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Your gravest misery in life could be your greatest ministry in life. He has a way of doing that. Only God could do that. We couldn't orchestrate that. We couldn't fabricate that. Only God could do that. So he can take your misery and turn it into a ministry for you. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, here's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 just for a moment. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You say, that's a lot right there. It sure is. We know that he is a God of comfort. What that says there, he comforts us in all of our affliction, our suffering, and as he comforts us, then he wants to use us to comfort other people. Here's what that means. Intimate fellowship with the one who understands suffering. Ministry opportunities because he wants to use you. There are people in this room. There are people who are watching. You understand what it's like to hear the word cancer in a doctor's office. And he wants to use your witness as you journey through that journey in life. There are people in this room, people who are watching. You understand what it's like to face financial setbacks in life. You've been there. You know what that's like. And he wants to use you in the lives of other people. There are people in this room, people who are watching. You understand job loss. You know what it's like to go in on a Monday morning and your job be over and you're trying to figure out which direction do I go in life. You have experienced the comfort of God and he wants to use you in your life. There are people in this room, people who are watching. You understand the death of a child. You understand the horror of walking through that, the pain of walking through that, the suffering of walking through that. You have experienced the comfort and the grace and favor of God in that. And because of that, he wants to use you in the lives of other people. Ministry opportunities. And so I just encourage you, when you find yourself going through misery, suffering, tribulation, adversity, whatever the word may be. Don't waste that. Allow God to comfort you because of your intimate fellowship with him and because him opening doors for you to have ministry in the lives of other people and allow him to use you as you minister to other people.
because he understands. Number two, understand Jesus knows. As you think about the church in Smyrna, you think about what, how can you stop the gospel? Preaching, singing, praying, sharing the good news of Christ, his sacrificial death, his burial, his resurrection. How do you stop the gospel? How do you stop John from ministering effectively in the name of Jesus as well? How do you do that? Here's what many people around the world in the days of Smyrna, but even to this day, believe. And here's what they say. If you will persecute believers, if you will cause them to suffer, then they will be unfaithful to Christ and they will be silent when it comes to the gospel. And I imagine there were people thinking about John to say, if we exile him to the island of Patmos, then he will not be effective, he will be silent, and the gospel will not go forth. Well, it's right the opposite of that. Because when you persecute believers and you ask them to suffer around the world, the gospel has a way of exploding. I'll never forget being in Asia and being in Amsterdam at Amsterdam 2000 met with two different groups of believers, asked them literally the same question, one of them standing outside, another one in an apartment unit, and I asked these believers, these brothers in Christ, these pastors, to say this, if Jesus Christ asked you to give your life for him, would you do so? In Amsterdam, Netherlands, in Asia, both of those Leaders, group of leaders basically said the same thing. And here's what they said. And I just quote them standing against the wall or standing outside. These brothers in Christ said, if it would bring God the most glory, we would give our lives for him today. That's extremely challenging. And so the world thinks if you persecute believers and ask them to suffer, then you'll stop the gospel. That is not true. The gospel literally explodes. Maybe they thought if we put John on the island of Patmos, then his ministry would be over. Yeah, did John really have much of a ministry? I mean, he just was used of the Holy Spirit to write the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and in the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos. I don't guess he had much of a ministry, did he? God used him amazing ways. And so you can't stop that. Understand Jesus knows. Let me give you some insight to the church in Smyrna. Write these down. Number one, extreme pressure. When you look at this, Jesus says to him, I know your tribulation. You may want to circle the word tribulation. What that word means is, is crushing pressure. When Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know your suffering. I know you're facing adversity. I know life is difficult for you. You are facing crushing pressure, but in the midst of that, you are faithful to me. You may be living the Christian life and you are facing pressure from people around you. Could be in your family, could be in your workplace, could be in your school. I just challenge you, if you know Jesus Christ, you're seeking to live for him, you are facing pressure, be faithful to Jesus in the midst of the pressure. Why? Because he knows what you're dealing dealing with. He knows what you're doing with. He says, I know your tribulation. So one, there's extreme pressure. Number two, financial poverty. He says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Monetarily, they didn't have much, but spiritually, they were rich in his eyes. Now, when you look at the word poverty in the Greek language, there are two meanings for that. One meaning is you don't have very much. The second meaning of that word is you have nothing. And Jesus said, I know your tribulation. I know your financial poverty. You don't have anything, but spiritually you are a rich group of people because you are faithful unto me. And so again, are we rich as a church? When I say rich, I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about being spiritually rich in his eyes. Are we faithful to him even when we are called to suffer and to face adversity for him? So 
financial poverty. Number three, hurtful words. He says in this passage, he goes on to say, I know your tribulation, your, your crushing pressure. I know your poverty. You don't have much, but you're rich because spiritually you're exactly who I've called you to be. And the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. He says, I know you're dealing with words that hurt, that bite, that sting, that, that are maybe false about you. You are dealing with slander, hurtful words. There are people in this room today and watching. We know what it's like to face slander when it comes to our relationship with Christ. Hurtful words. But I want to encourage you, when it's tribulation, when it's slander, when it's poverty financially, what be faithful to Christ. Wayne Kadera pastored in Hawaii. And Wayne has written many, many books, pastored a large church in Hawaii. One time he was in Asia, which I've had the opportunity to do that as well, meet with some of the leaders and members of the underground church and do some work with them. It's incredible to be able to do that. Wayne was one time in Asia. And so he had about 20 leaders together, members of this house church, and they were spending some time together. Wayne was going to be teaching them. And so just kind of a break ice situation, Wayne asked everyone to introduce themselves, and they're doing that. Comes across with a lady who is there in Asia. She introduces herself. Come to find out she had been in prison, and she had just been released from prison. She spent 13 years in prison. She was not a criminal. She was, not a, she, she, she was in prison because she was a believer in Jesus, and she confessed that Jesus is Lord. And she was in prison. Wayne was overwhelmed with that. And so Wayne continued to go through. And he asked those who are believers to open their Bibles to Second Peter. And so Wayne noticed that this one member of this underground church did not have a Bible. And so he asked her, would you like me to give you a copy of the Bible? And she says, if we're going to study Second Peter, I don't need that Bible right now. And she literally began to quote the entire book of Second Peter from memory. And Wayne's like, how in the world did you do that? And this lady opened her mouth and she said, you have to realize, Pastor, when you live in this part of the world and you go to prison, you can't take Bibles into prisons. So when we find ourselves in prison because of suffering and persecution and adversity, we have to hide the word of God in our hearts, in our minds, that we will not sin against him. And she said, I have memorized all of Second Peter. And she said, when I was in prison, I could just quote the words of God over and over again. Wayne continues teaching. He got to the end and he asked these group of leaders and members in the, in the church there in Asia. He said, as, as we leave here in just a little bit, how can I pray for you all? And, and one of the leaders spoke up and said, we'd love for you to pray for us and we'd love for you to pray for us in two ways. One, we would love to be free like you are in America. And two, we'd like to be like the church in America that we could have buildings like you all have. Now imagine that, you're in Asia, underground church leaders, members, they want to be like the church in America. They want to have freedom, but they also want to have buildings. And Wayne, Pastor Wayne just said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, convicted by him, I just responded back to that leader, but also those members to say, I will not, I will not, I will not pray that way for you. And Wayne said, I'm not going to pray for you to be like us in America. I pray the church in America will be like you. Because when you're faithful to Christ, you're going to know tribulation. When you're faithful to Christ, you may not have all the money in the world, but you can be spiritually rich in his eyes. When you're faithful to Christ, you need to be ready for some hurtful words. Slander very well may come about your life. Be faithful in the midst of suffering. Number three, know Jesus leads. 
When you look at this text, what, what do you say to uh, a believer who's facing difficult people? How do you handle spiritual warfare in your life? Jesus, in reference to this church, he talks about he's the first and the last. He's the one who died and came to life. He's given them understanding about how well he knows them. Here's how he's going to lead them because he's going to give them three action steps that he wants this group of believers to take in life. And look at the first one, fear not. He says to them, I know your tribulation, your poverty. I know the slander, all those things like that. And then he comes to them and he says, but do not fear. For you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. What does he mean there? He's given them a warning that says Satan is after you. He's going to throw some of you into prison. You're going to be tested and you're going to do so for 10 days. What does that mean is you're going to suffer more, more adversities coming into your lives, but also it is not going to last forever. That's the reference to the 10 days. It is going to be a reality, but it's going to pass. And he says, fear not. Do not be afraid. It's the most often command in the Bible is to fear not. Many of you remember after 9-11. I mean, our country was in fear. Stock markets crashed. Many, many people were afraid to get on an airplane again. I'll never fly on an airplane again because of all that happened with 9-11. Our president, Department of Homeland Security, came out and asked us to say, you need to get back to living life again. You don't have to live life in fear. And so Jesus is saying to the church there, but also to us, when you face persecution, adversity comes your way, you're called upon to suffer for Jesus. You don't have anything to fear because he's been crushed. As you're going to be crushed, he's faithful. You can be faithful. He just says, fear not. Number two, be faithful. He gives the church this understanding. He says, don't want you to fear. But then also he says, be faithful unto death. That's a sobering word right there for us in this room and those who are watching. It's almost we don't even understand that about be faithful unto death. Even if you're called to give your life for Jesus, be faithful to him. Church history says this. You can go back and look at this. Polycarp. You can just write that down. You can Google his life and story later. Polycarp was the pastor at one time of the church in Smyrna. One day there was a knock at his door and there were some guards who came to his door. They came to arrest him because the pastor, Polycarp, they were going to kill him. They were going to kill him again. Why? Because he lived his life as a believer in Jesus in the city of Smyrna where you were to say Caesar's Lord. He would not do that. He would not bend his knee to Caesar. He said Jesus is Lord. And so the guards came to his house that day going to take his life out and kill him. And, and as they said that to Polycarp. Here's what Polycarp said to them, the pastor of the church in Smyrna. He says, okay, if you're going to do that, can you allow me to have two requests before you do that? And the guards were stunned, and the guards said, Yeah, sure, what are your requests? He said, My first request is, would you give me a little time that I can prepare for you a meal? I want to serve you something to eat. They thought that was really strange because the very one they're coming to take his life, now he's wanting to serve them and to serve them a meal. And so he did that, and they said, What's your second request? And he said, After I serve you the meal, will you give me an hour to pray before we leave the house? And the guard said, you can serve us a meal and we'll give you an hour to pray. So Polycarp fixed a meal and served him. He prayed for an hour and the guards were troubled that they were the ones there to get Polycarp because they said, this man prays with incredible passion. The hour is up. The guards 
said, Polycarp, it's time to go. They got the chains out and they were going to chain Polycarp up. And Polycarp said, you don't have to chain me because I die for my king willingly. No chains needed. They took him out of his house, took him down to the public square. Many, many people had gathered in the public square because they wanted to see the pastor of the church in Smyrna, someone who would not say Caesar's Lord, would not bend his knee, but only to Jesus Christ. They wanted to see him die. And as guards were leading him to that place where he was going to be martyred, they said to Polycarp, if you would deny Jesus, and if you will say with your lips that Caesar is Lord, we will allow you to live. What would you and I say in the midst of that? Polycarp, 86 years of life at that time. Polycarp made this statement when they said, if you'll deny Jesus, you'll confess Caesar as Lord, you'll live, we'll let you go. Here's what Polycarp said. Polycarp said, and I quote, he said, for 86 years of my life, Jesus has never wronged me and I will never wrong him one time in life. You can take my life. Polycarp was faithful unto death, the pastor in Smyrna. Here's the interesting part. Again, you can go back in church history and see this. They tried to burn him at the stake and he wouldn't burn. They tried other ways to kill him and it did not work. Finally, they took a spear and stabbed him. But Polycarp was faithful unto death. What about you? Number three, look beyond Here's what Jesus went on to say. He said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who is in the air, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Is the one who conquers will not hurt, be hurt by the second death. You may want to write these words down. People in the world, they, they live to die. People in the world live to die, but those who are believers in Christ, we die to live. Very different. Look beyond. He said, I'm going to give you the crown of life. There are people today, they, they put in training, 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 training. Why? Because they want a Super Bowl ring or, or they want a championship net around their necks or they want a gold medal from the Olympics. They train hours upon hours to do that. He's asking us to look beyond. He says, I give you the crown of life. Church, I, I can't wait for the day. I stand before him prayerfully to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant and receive the crown of life. I'm not going to walk around wearing it boasting. I can't wait to cast it at the feet of Jesus and worship to him. Why? Because he is worthy. What are you willing to give in your relationship to Christ? Angie and I, uh, two and a half weeks ago, were in St. Andrews, Scotland. Bucket list item for me is to play the old course in St. Andrews. And so I'd sent them emails before we ever left to say, as a single player, is there any way I can play the course at St. Andrews? And they kept sending me emails back. I thought if I email different people, maybe somebody would give me a different answer. But they've got a script over there. They're all going by the same script. And so they came back and said, we do not book tea times for single players. We have groups and members, no single players. So we land in Edinburgh that day and I called the course on the way out to St. Andrews and said, hey, I've landed. I'm on my way out to St. Andrews. Do you have a cancellation that we could play? That I could play? And they said, no cancellations. You can't get on the course as a single player today. We get into St. Andrews. We put our luggage in the place we we're staying. We walk to the clubhouse. I walk in the clubhouse and I say to them, hey, I'm here. Is there any cancellations, any way I can get on the course and play? And they said, no, there are no cancellations. You cannot do that. 
So I'm standing over there like, what am I going to do now? And so there was this gracious lady who came to me and she said, she said, I know you really want to play this course and I'm going to tell you how to do it, but I'm not sure you'll do it, but I want to tell you how to do it tomorrow. And so she gets out this T-sheet. It's in writing. It's on a piece of paper. It's nothing but computers. And she says, tomorrow, which would have been Thursday, we have 14 tea times available. That's all we have for tomorrow. And and what happens in the morning is at 6 a.m., this door right here opens. The first 14 people in line will get those tea times. And so if you want to play this course, you need to be one of the first 14 people in line tomorrow. And then I said, well, hey, that's great. It's open at 6 o'clock. What time do you think I need to be here? She said, I I would be here at least by 3 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) I said, hey, I can do that. I'm up early. So it's only from some some like um, 3 to 6. It's only three hours. And so Anne and I went and had dinner on that Wednesday night. We go back to the place we're staying at. And so about 7.30, I told Angie, hey, I'm going to walk over to the course and just see what's going on, see what's happening over there. It didn't get dark till like 10 o'clock. And so I walk back over to the course and I get to the clubhouse and lo and behold, there are three guys sitting outside 7.30 at night. So I strike up a conversation with them and I say this, are you guys getting ready to play or are you here for the night? And those three guys said, we're here for the night. Uh, we're, we want to play this course and so we're going to be here tonight. That was at 7.30 at night. And they said, hey, you in with us? I said, I don't think I'm here at 7.30. I'm fixing to make, make, you know, make a break here and go. So I go back to where we were staying at. Told Angie at 10 o'clock I'm going to go back over there. So 10 o'clock came and we would rested a little bit, didn't go back over there. So about 11.30, 11.45, I told Angie, I said, we ought to walk back over there and just see what's going on. So Angie, very gracious, said, I'll go with you. And so we go back over there. We get to the clubhouse at midnight. And so there are, at midnight, I was number 10 at that point of 14. And that's at midnight. And so we had a decision. What are we going to make? We're kind of this fork in the road. If I'm going to stay or I'm going to leave, if I'm going to play this course, I'm going to have to stay. And so I made a commitment. Midnight, we're staying till 6 o'clock in the morning. We're here the rest of the night. God always provides. There was this man from South Korea who came in. And he was number 11, and so he had a backpack, and he pulled out two blankets, one for him, and thank the Lord he gave one to us because we weren't prepared to spend the night outdoors at that point. And so the question, what in the world? And so by 1230, I mean, there were 20-something people there by that time, and then by the time 6 o'clock came, there was like 30 people there, so we had to do that. Now, here's the thing. What in the world did you do outside all night long? You couldn't leave. You had to stay right there. What did you do? Well, from midnight to six in the morning, I prayed and had a conversation with God. God, what in the world am I doing out here at midnight? Thank the Lord Angie's right there with me as well. She's suffering just as I am. I also wrote a Bible study that night as I was there on my phone from midnight to 6 a.m. in the morning. And then I was there. I was thinking about my grandmother. My grandmother introduced me to golf. And I'm thinking about my grandmother when I started playing golf at five. She would have never imagined that introducing me to golf, that I'd be at the old course in St. Andrews, Scotland, getting ready to play one of the most historic courses in all the world. And then here's also what happened. The conviction comes to say, now if I'm willing to do this to play golf, spend all night outside, midnight to six in the morning, Jesus, what am I willing to do for you? If I'll do that to play golf, what am I willing to do for him? Now, I just encourage you, what, what would you be willing to do for him as well? I want us to bow our heads together here for a moment because I want to be faithful to him. All suffering will come in the Christian life. 
We may experience persecution in the days ahead like we've never experienced before. You're going to face adversity. You're going to face storms like you've never experienced before. I just want to encourage you, are you willing to be faithful to him? You want to be faithful to him. I want to ask you in the room and those who are watching, how many of you today, he gave his life for you. How many of you need to give your lives for him? You need to get saved today. You need to follow him in believer's baptism. You need to join the fellowship of this church. You need to deal with an issue in the Christian life where you be faithful to him, give your life to him. God's calling you into ministry and you need to surrender your life to vocational ministry to say, Jesus, here I am. I give you my life. Folks, I was willing to do that to play golf. Many of you have been willing to do that on Black Friday and other times just to get some deal at some store. But when it comes to Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who shed his blood on a cross, what are we willing to give up for him? I want to encourage you today. We're going to sing nothing but the blood of Christ here in just in a few moments. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. He gave his life for us. I want to encourage you on this Sunday, give your life and your all for him. You'll never regret that decision. Oh, did I, did I regret six hours outside? I appreciate Angie uh, right there with me. I, looking back, I, I would have regretted if I didn't do that. Am I going to regret giving all of my life to Jesus and following his leadership? I'm not ever going to regret that. I want to receive that crown of life and then cast it at his feet in worship because he's worthy. Lord Jesus, thank you for the believers in Smyrna. Thank you for the believers here in Clarksville, Tennessee. And Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life for us. And Jesus, I pray we're spiritually rich in your sight. And Lord, I pray in this invitation that decisions will be made in this invitation because we're asking people to come to you today. You're the one who sets people free. You're the one, the beginning and the end. You're the one who died and came to life. Draw us to yourself, we pray. That only happens because you shed your blood for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Amen.